Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, gang, you know, Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your sports action. Bet Online has you covered all the news, scores, and the odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. You head to the website betonline.ag or you use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Hey again, everybody, and we want to ask you to please keep subscribing and telling your friends about us. Thanks to you, we're enjoying tremendous growth right now, and your support helps us get the great guests that you've come to expect, like today's legend, longtime radio voice of the Cincinnati Reds, Marty Brenneman. And Mark, when Marty retired recently, I think we knew the game was never going to see another one like him. Yeah, you're exactly right, Mike. Uh, I, I was fortunate to be in the Reds uniform in 1999, so I got to meet Marty Brenneman. And it was interesting because my first year, it was Jack Buck. So you're thinking about the legends of the game and how they are so connected to their organization in the city. Uh, Marty Brenneman is an icon in the game of baseball. Can't wait to hear his stories because he is a brilliant storyteller. Well, it's hard to believe that your last game was in 2019, Marty, but 46 years as the voice of the Reds. Take us back. Uh, even though you knew the end was coming, you made the decision yourself. Those last few days up until the final moment of your final season, what was it like? Well, you know, uh, the thing about it is, Mike, I, I didn't want any of that stuff. I uh, The year before, I, I had wanted to uh, do the last game of the season and then pick up the phone on Monday morning and call Phil Castellini, who's the CEO, COO of the club, and say, hey, I got bad news for you. I've done my last baseball game. And I didn't want all the hoopla and all that stuff. I, I felt uncomfortable uh, by it all, but then they got wind of it and they got upset. And I, I reluctantly agreed to come back in, in 19 and go through whatever they wanted to go through. And and it, the nicest thing was what clubs did when I came in for the last time. Uh, but then came the last, um, the last home series of the year. I think it was the 24, 5, and 6 of September in 19. And the club was going on the road that weekend to Pittsburgh, but I wasn't going. I, uh, I requested I'd rather end. I began the career at home. I wanted to end the career at home. And so the last three days were just a whirlwind. I mean, they had all kinds of things and giveaways uh, reflecting upon my career and, and, um, and the last day was really tough. Uh, it, it was an emotional day for me, my entire family, my daughter came in from say, uh, Chicago with her family and, uh, my two kids here in town with their children and my grandkids and, and everybody was here. Um, and you know, the last, uh, the last inning and, uh, trying to get through the post game. And then they had this big celebration down on the field where they invited the fans to come down and they had a stage out around second base. And uh, I was there and, and um, Jeff Brantley, my radio partner was there. My son, Tom, uh, Chris Welsh, all these guys that I had, I'd worked with over the years were there and, um, and surrounded by all the fans. And it, it was, it was just, uh, whatever I expected exceeded it, and and um, it, it was it was just a an unforgettable day for me. And 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 when I look back upon it, I really appreciated all the effort that the club put into it 
to make it as special for me and as special for, for my family as it was. Marty, uh, when you're answering that question, it, it, I, I, I circle back. And when I was with St. Louis as, as a young player, as my first full year, Ozzie Smith has his last day in a Cardinal right. uniform. Um, and, and I remember those things because that's how baseball is woven together and, and has those moments. Longevity speaks volumes, right? But I remember Ozzy trying to pause and uh, he had the ability to uh, slow everything down in those moments where you're starting to get emotional. He had yeah. that start on his last day. And I'll never forget. He asked me to come with him to the batting cages. So I walked in as a young player because I had a good relationship with him and I sat in the back of the cage and it was almost like his calming moment for the day that was speeding up because there's so many right. things that you have to do. Did you have any of those moments that day where you kind of took your time and, and stepped back away from all of the craziness? Because there's so many people that want to get to you at that moment. Well, you know, the good thing about my situation as opposed to a player, Mark, was uh, the club was pretty adamant about other than family members, nobody was allowed in the radio booth that day. I've never had a problem with that. They want to, I, I jokingly referred to the fact that I felt like I could broadcast a baseball game from the floor at Grand Central Station in New York, and it would yeah. not bother having a lot of people around as long as they're respectful of what we're doing. And you know that as well as I do, because you're now uh, a member of the broadcast fraternity. But that day, they, they, they realized it far more than I did that I didn't need a lot of people in there. I didn't need a semi chaotic situation. And so essentially I, uh, I didn't have any problem. Uh, I was surrounded by the guys that I love that I work with. And um, we tried as best we could at the beginning of the broadcast, um, and for most of the uh, of the broadcast, it, it was just like any other game. Uh, we didn't constantly refer to this as my last day, and uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to concentrate on broadcasting the game, just like it was a game in June or, or July or whatever the case might be, and then deal with the finality of it all in the post game. And 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 that's what I did. But I got very very emotional. Uh, I used to, you know, I used to feel that um, a man's, a man crying was the most unmacho thing that I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. And I, and as I've gotten older, and and I've realized how important relationships are with people. Um, I, I, my old partner for 31 years, God bless him, Joe Nuxall. I used to kid with him. I'd say you could cry at the a door opening or cry at the sun coming up. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I could not do that. But now I, I can. And, 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 and it just comes naturally for me because I cherish moments. I cherish relationships. And maybe I did when I was younger, but it's something you don't think about. When you get to be almost 79 years old, like I am, uh, you realize that your better days are behind you. So relationships mean a heck of a lot to me. And, and that day was all about relationships. It was about my relationship with people who had faithfully turned on the radio for 46 years to listen to my nonsense. And, and, and so that meant an awful lot to me. And it really was tough uh, to keep the tears flowing. And I think I had everybody in the radio booth crying uh, toward the end of it. Um, it. It was, it was, it was really, really a special day for me.
Let's dial back the clock, if you wouldn't mind. That's 46 <laughs> years to 1974, when you first got that Reds job. You're a few years into the decade of the Big Red Machine. What do you remember about getting that job, your first season, and those initial relationships? Well, the funny thing was, Mike, uh, I didn't I didn't appreciate how great that team was until years later, when I started to have a means of comparison uh, between that team and some of the other teams that came along in the National League uh, long after they won the world championships in back-to-back seasons in 75 and 76. I knew about Bench. I knew about Pete. I knew about Joe Morgan, God rest his soul, and Tony Perez and Davey Concepcion, et cetera. Knew all about them. Uh, I was doing triple-A ball in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, and I kept up with what was going on in the big leagues. But to say that uh, I realized how great that team was, I didn't. Um, but then, you know, the first year I was with the club, they fell behind – uh, I think something like 12 and a half games uh, to the Dodgers and almost caught them in September. They came to within two and a half games uh, and, and you really put some pressure on LA in the last month of the season. Then in 75, 76, they win it all. Uh, in 1977, uh, we, the club was in Philadelphia playing the Phillies and they had a broadcaster by the name of Byron Somm, who was in the broadcaster's wing of the hall of fame and had been doing Philadelphia baseball either the athletics or uh, the Phillies uh, forever. And he came up to me one day in the radio booth or the press box uh, and said, uh, young man, do you realize how lucky you are? And rather flippantly, I said, well, yeah, I guess I do. I said, I'm, you know, I'm broadcasting big league baseball. It doesn't get any better than that. He said, I'm not talking about that. I said, what? He said, you've got two world championship rings. And I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, I've been doing Philadelphia baseball since 1947. I don't have one. So I, I thought you were supposed to do it every year. I, I thought if you didn't get a world championship ring, then somebody was not <laughs> doing their job. And then from 76 until the next time they won it, and the last time they won it in 1990 with that team that featured Barry Larkin and Eric Davis and the Nasty Boys and Lou Pinella, uh, I cherished that season uh, – that's my favorite team of all time, the 1990 club. The, the club, the Big Red Machine teams, obviously, uh, was the best team I'd ever been associated with. And the thing I found so remarkable about that team is that those infrequent times when they were playing at Old Riverfront Stadium and they'd go into a seventh inning or an eighth inning and they might have been behind by three or four runs, nobody went anywhere because they knew that sooner or later something would happen to turn it around and – and, uh, and more often than not, it did. Uh, it was a team of incredible egos. It was a team that, uh, quite honestly, there was no love lost between Pete Rose and Johnny Bench. And they lockered at opposite ends of the clubhouse. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what, what, what the problem was, but they, they did not hang out. Uh, but once they went on that field, whatever disagreements you might have had with you know, the guy down the, down the, down the clubhouse from you, they put all that stuff aside. And um, it was just a thrill to watch him play because they were confident. Uh, they were never, uh, they were never negatively cocky. I don't, I can't recollect the time when they got into a fight on the field because of something that they did to embarrass the other team. Sparky Anderson had a rule that from the sixth inning on, if you were six runs or more up, uh, 
you did not steal a base and you did not swing three and oh he did not believe in embarrassing people so they would systematically go out and beat your brains out but they would do it with such a level of class that they never left the bad taste in anybody's mouth i i was just impressed by uh, the way they dealt with whatever came along they they handled the spotlight uh it, it was fun it was fun to be around them Marty, did you realize that uh, immediately? Because this was a team that, uh, to your point, would come into town. They'd be dressed all nice when they got off the plane and yep. the buses, and and they would just do their thing. And it was different personalities, uh, different way of doing it, but they had confidence. When did you realize uh, that that team was that special? Because you said you didn't understand it. You were getting your first job, and you're realizing this team – is is pretty special in the game of baseball. When did you first realize that? I tell you, I think I really believe, Mark, after the second year in, in which they won it all, because I've maintained forever. You know, they beat the Red Sox in seven games in the uh, 75 World Series. And then the following year, they swept the Yankees four straight. Um, I The teams that I had seen that the Dodgers – was the second best team in baseball and they beat the Dodgers by 10 games, I think in 1975. And then they won by 20 games in 1976. And I still felt that the Dodger team of 76 was a better team than the New York Yankees that they swept in the world series. And I'm thinking, you know, if they can do this to a division against a Dodger team that as most Dodger clubs have been, as you well know, loaded with pitching year in and year out, especially then, um, I realized then that this, this team is something special. And I know Bob Housem, who was the architect, he's a guy that made the trade with Houston in 1971 to bring Joe Morgan and Cesar Geronimo and Jack Billingham to that club. And in doing so, he had to trade two players who were extremely popular in this town in Lee May and Tommy Helms. And he knew he was going to get heat for it but he made the deal anyway. And that they were the final pieces to the puzzle. And he made the comment in 1976 um, in the locker room at Yankee stadium clubhouse, at Yankee stadium, when they'd finished off the sweep, he made the comment. He said, I truly believe that we will never see another team in our lifetime as, as, as talented and as great as this one. And with extreme prejudice, I can sit here and tell you that I haven't seen a team as good as that. And there have been some very good teams. In fact, when Sparky was fired and eventually went to Detroit and, you know, he won it all in 1984 and he had Gibson and Trammell and Whitaker and that whole bunch. Um, he made what the old guard with a big red machine uh, felt was a fatal mistake when he made a comment to some media person, this team here, uh, probably the finest team I've ever managed. And before he dotted the sentence, uh, he got a call from Bench and, and Pete and Morgan. And they said, what the hell are you talking about? Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? <laughs> and then he had to back off a little bit. Um, and then thank God he went into the Hall of Fame wearing a red cap. Uh, it, it was, it, and I'll be honest with you, Mark, I was fortunate to, um, you know, to go into the broadcaster's wing uh, 21 years ago. And I truly believe this. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe one day I might have gone in, but I truly believe that my association with that team, even though it was on the periphery and I was a broadcaster, I think that had as much to do 
uh, with me going in one idea as anything else. I truly believe that. Marty, it's interesting you say that too, because I, I what's fascinating to me is uh, Sparky Anderson, as you mentioned, uh, had a, a great uh, camaraderie with a lot of people in the game of baseball. Uh, yep. What was that relationship like? Because it's changed now uh, with the, the modern game of the connection you have with the manager. What was that like for you and also Sparky Anderson, I, I, because I think that's essential for you to do your job in the broadcasting booth. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I've been fortunate all, all through the years I was there. I had great relationships with uh, almost every manager on that club. And, and I had the I had the confidence of those guys and they would talk to me in confidence, know that knowing that I would never break that confidence because all you got to do is break it one time and then it's over with. But he took me under his wing. Uh, he and, and and Joe Nuxall were probably the two guys that meant more to me. But I, I got the same kind of cooperation from Bench and Morgan and Pete and Perez and all those guys. They they made my transition, uh, it, it, which was could have been awfully tough because people loved Al Michaels in this town, and and had it not been for my their willingness. To do what they did for me uh, really made it a lot easier. But in Sparky's case, um, he was just special. Um, I uh, we 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 would we would do things together uh, on the road. Uh, he uh, would tell me everything that was going on, and as you well know, oftentimes you 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 find out information that things that you can't use, but it gives you a better understanding of why things were being done as they were publicly. And so um, when he was fired, uh, that was the first time that um, anybody who I was close to in that organization was let go. And I broke down and cried. Uh, Chief Bender was a director of player personnel with our club. And I went into his office the morning they announced John McNamara as Sparky's successor. And, and I broke down and cried uh, because I had such great feeling for him and and, and he was a genuinely good person. And, and we just had a wonderful relationship up until the time he passed away. Uh, is that your dog barking in the background in agreement? <laughs> Sounds like giving you the big that, amen. That is Millie, who is our Maltese who runs this house. And, <laughs> and I'm here this week babysitting her and our two cats. My wife is down in Siesta Key visiting with her parents. So I get the duty of taking care of these animals. And somebody's walking around outside and she's raising hell. You, know, you, just, you, you tell Millie we appreciate her letting us borrow you for a little while. I will, believe me, I will. Thank you. <laughs> I want to stay on the notion of, uh, of those relationships. And you talked about uh, how special it was for you with uh, Sparky Anderson. Back at the beginning, you had also mentioned uh, Joe Nuxall, who on the outside, a lot of us remember as being a 15-year-old breaking into the big leagues. But as right. a fan of the Reds, what a wonderful broadcaster and partner for you. Tell us about what it was like uh, from a relationship end with a guy who, as we know, sometimes what the public sees uh, isn't always what's going on in private. Describe your relationship a little. Well, the longer we worked, the closer we got. And it, it was such, uh, I used to kid him. I said, our relationship is born out of the fact that both of us are left-handed. That automatically means we're a little bit different. <laughs> and that's why we get along so well. Um, we, we knew, we, we got to know each other so well that I could finish a sentence that he stopped and he could do the same thing. And 
Um, we used to get mail uh, when I felt like we had arrived as a team. And it was never Marty Brenneman. It was never Joe Nuxall. It was always Marty and Joe. And the, the, the deal around here was Marty and Joe on Red's radio. It just happened to work. Uh, we'd start to get mail uh, delivered to the ballpark, and it was simply addressed Marty and Joe, Cincinnati, Ohio. No address, no nothing. And I uh, ran into a, a, a one of the key people with the U.S. Post Office in downtown Cincinnati one day, and we were talking. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, legally, you're not supposed to deliver me. He said, believe me, in this town, when it's addressed to you and Joe, we know where to send it. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know what? We must be doing something right. We um, we would talk about anything. We talk about Joe's golf game. We talk about my tomato plants. I used to grow tomatoes, and uh, we talk about anything. And and it, it was not contrived. It was not something that we sat down one day and said, you know, this being the most provincial city I've ever lived in. Uh, let me share this phone off. I uh, I would. Uh, I, it was it was a situation where um, we just had such a bond between the two of us, um, and we enjoyed each other's company. Uh, we'd have dinner on the road, we'd play golf on the road. Uh, in all the years that we were around, I don't know that we ever had any major disagreement um, that made us angry with the other one, and and. It. Uh, I've often said that in all the years I've been here and, and full well knowledgeable about the so-called sports icons in this city and the two that people talk about the most are Pete Rose and talk about Oscar Robertson. Oscar was from Indianapolis, but he had played the University of Cincinnati, was one of the probably top five or ten players in the history of basketball. Joe Nuxall, head and shoulders above either one of those guys. In all the years that we were together, I never heard one person utter a negative about him. I mean, ever. And, you know, you're going to catch a guy on a bad day or a bad night, and somebody's going to walk away with a less than positive uh, uh, impression of you as a person. It never happened with him. Um, and uh, you talk about emotion when he retired. Uh, it, that was a day that was really tough, and we went through an entire baseball season knowing that the last game of the season was going to be the last day that he and I ever worked together. And we never wanted to confront it over the course of a season. We never talked about it. And then the last day of the season came with the game ends. And he, um, I say to him on the air, I said, well, I guess we finally have to deal with it. Don't we? And he said, yep, I guess we do. And I couldn't get through it. And he, he leaned across to me and he put his arm on my shoulder and he said, you need some help, don't you, little buddy? That's what he used to do. I said, yeah, I need some help. And uh, we got through it. And um, the last time that I was ever with him, he and I played golf one day in November of 2000. I think it was 2007. And he had been sick. Um, we, it was a charity thing. Some guys won the right to play golf with us at Kenwood country club here in Cincinnati. And, um, uh, he, I, uh, I picked him up. He, he, he drove his van to the golf course. And, uh, I, I told, I, I 
followed with a golf cart and I put his golf clubs on the, on the cart and we go out and we play and he was not strong enough to, um, uh, to play 18 holes, but uh, with the two guys that were there, uh, he was a great storyteller. He had great recall of something that might've happened in 1954. And we go around the golf course and uh, every now and then he'd hit a shot, but uh, more often than not, he would be telling stories and, and, and um, he, we get to the 14th tee box and he, um, he leaned over and he said, we really had a good time, didn't we? And I said, yeah, we had a great time. And five days later, he was dead. Probably knew that that was going to be the last time I got a picture in my home of, of, of you know, posing that day at the golf course. Um, everyone should go through life, whatever your calling is and have the privilege of working with a person uh, that in many ways was a mentor to me. Um, he, he, he taught me a lot about how to carry my celebrity in this town and, and a person that you genuinely love. And, and, you know, I was blessed to come to this city and broadcast baseball, but I was blessed to work with a guy like him for 31 years, which is by the way, um, equaling the longest tandem uh, in the history of radio play-by-play in baseball. Uh, ben Scully and Jerry Doggett worked 31 years together, and Joe and I worked 31 years together. Uh, Marty, you I mean, you understand. I, I had the privilege of, of donning the Reds uniform yes. uh, in 1999. And, and the reason why I say that, um, it coincides with my meeting of Joe Nuxall for the first time. As you mentioned there's not one person you can find that says anything negative about Nuxie. Right. Um, when I met him, and it's usually players that introduce you to the history of the of of the Reds, and and they tell you what it's about. It was Joe Nuxall for me, and I'm a utility guy. I'm a guy that's coming off the bench. He took time for everybody, and yeah. why I mention that is that I'll never forget me sitting down and. During his conversation about the Reds, about, you know, you're going to love this place, you're going to understand all this stuff, I, I, I was sitting and realizing, man, this is what baseball's all about. Uh, this is why I am the luckiest guy around, not only to play, put a Reds uniform on, but to learn the aspects of the game that mean the most. It's about relationships, right. about everything else. Um it brings me to a conversation because it being the Reds and knowing that your fandom of you and Nuxie, uh, you guys did a lot of commercials together. You guys oh, yeah. have to have a funny story. Does one in particular come to mind? Because that uh, probably wasn't the easiest thing for Nuxie to do. Well, there's there's a, a grocery store chain here, Kroger, which is the largest go- grocery chain in the in the in the world. It, it owns. Uh, 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 supermarkets around the country under other names, but it, it's based here in Cincinnati. And so they hired us back in the eighties to do TV commercials for them. And, uh, and we would, uh, the outtakes are incredible. I mean, I, I thank God somebody had the, uh, the, the foresight, not only to get me a set of all the commercials we did, but also the, um, uh, the uh, outtakes, which were spectacular. We, uh, we did a commercial once in, um, in Tampa and we, they rented a house 
we would you know, we we trained the club trained you as you well know, and and uh, and so they rented this house. This couple, a well-to-do family, they wanted their kids to experience all types of things growing up, and so they took them out of school and they just turned their house over to our production company. And uh, the production company came up from Miami. They were the same people that produce a Miami Vice TV show, so it was a big deal. And we're in this house, and uh, every conceivable thing that could happen happened they had guys mowing their lawns and they had to pay him to stop and they had planes flying over which they had no control over and uh we started uh we had to show up to get makeup on like at seven o'clock in the morning we started uh doing four commercials at around nine o'clock and we finished at quarter to two the next morning (laughs) and i mean he was dragging and and so you know you reach a certain point where all the all the funny stuff that you do that gets old after a while because all you want to do is get the commercials done and get the hell out of there and go home. So we had this commercial where they we were mixing salad and and uh, and and he's talking to me and I'm talking to him. We're outside on the patio and uh, uh, and all of a sudden uh, we're getting toward the end of the commercial and I'm holding the. the, the container of salad and i just said the heck with this i just turn around i threw it right in his face <laughs> <laughs> and the whole, everybody on the production team thought it was the funniest thing in the world and they really wanted to put it on they wanted to make it a part of the commercial but they didn't do it uh but we did stuff like that to each other all the time one of the great stories of all time uh reds are playing a game in san francisco and joe was the most naive guy that ever lived. I mean, I felt bad for him. Sometimes the things I would played on him, it was not no fun because it was so easy. And we're doing a game at Candlestick. This is 78, I guess. And we had an engineer out there named Mike Marquide. And we hired an engineers on the road. And so Mike comes to Candlestick and he has this videotape machine. And back when they first came out uh, to the public, they were big and they were cumbersome and they were everything that they later turned out not to be. They were, you could hold it with one hand, but this thing Mike slid under his feet and, um, and the booth was small. I mean, there was just enough space where Mike was, uh, up against the right wall. I was in the middle. Uh, Joe was, I was in the middle and Joe was on the left side on the other wall. That there's no space. So now the game begins and it's an afternoon game and the game's being TV back to Cincinnati. And we have a monitor in the booth and, and periodically, um, I would start to laugh for no reason. And during a commercial break, Joe said, what's going on with you? What's so funny? He sa- I said, you know, it's just a great day. We got a high sky here, which was, uh, you know, nothing but blue sky. It was a warm day, warm for San Francisco. So the game goes on and we get to the seventh inning and come out of the commercial break. And I said to Reggie, the Giants four to one and back with a play by play. Here's Joe. So Joe Morgan leads off. And he gets a base hit and he tries to steal second and it's a bang, bang play. And the umpire's second base calls him out. Um, Sparky comes out. Joe's out there arguing. The replay showed that he was safe. Joe gets pitched. Sparky gets pitched. We're watching the replay over and over and over again. And then all of a sudden up on the monitor pops a scene from the pornographic movie, Deep Throat. Oh, no. <laughs> I am crying. I mean, I'm crying. And he stops talking. 
It's just nothing but dead air. And I'm, I'm, I, he's elbowing me with his right arm and he's pointing at the monitor. And I, I, I can't say anything. I'm, I'm completely discombobulated. He thought the same thing we were seeing on that monitor was the same thing that people back in Cincinnati were watching. It was the funniest thing. It was just one of many things. <laughs> and it, so good natured about it. He would just go on and just, you know, he'd never get upset with anybody, but he, he had just a special disposition and a very, very special way about him. You know, one of the things that has always struck me listening to you do what it is you did so well for so long was you're just so unaffected and you were just so much yourself. When you're a young broadcaster, that's the advice you always get is, hey, just be yourself, which is always easier said than done once the red light hits, right? And the mic is hot, then all of a sudden you try to be who you think the audience needs you to be and not right. realizing what you are is more than good enough. Tell us about your influences and who taught you to be the Marty Brenneman I think all of Cincinnati and a lot of the nation learned to love. Well, the nicest thing that people have ever said to me, Mike, is you're the same guy off the air as you are on the air. And I, I, it goes back to what you were just talking about. Um, I, I used to tell, uh, I did a lot of college basketball, uh, did NCAA tournaments and final fours on the radio. And I would tell guys that I work with that I'd never worked with before, former players who know the game a hell of a lot better than I do. And I would tell them, just be yourself. Don't try to be somebody that you're not. If, if you have a certain disposition that people have, have, have been attracted to, then let that get through on the air. Um, I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, uh, I had, I think it had a lot to do with my upbringing. Um, uh, anytime I got a big head about anything, my mom and dad would be very quick to tell me, you know, you ain't all that special. And, and, and so I never felt like I got affected by any of the good things that came my way as a result of what I decided to do for a living. Um, I used to listen to guys on the radio as a kid growing up in Virginia um, doing baseball, never, never consciously saying, you know, this is what I want to do for a living one day. I listened to a guy in the mid-50s by the name of Nat Albright who recreated Brooklyn Dodger baseball games. I had no idea what a recreation was. All I know is I'm going up and down the dial one night in my hometown in Portsmouth, Virginia, and I hear this guy doing a baseball game. And I was so taken by his approach, by his knowledge, um, that I listened to him religiously. And I wasn't a Dodger fan. I, I never was then, never became one, obviously, when I came here. That was a bad idea. And uh, so it was It was some years later when I found out that uh, he was recreating Brooklyn Dodger baseball games. And and um, I, I think that was when uh, the seed was subconsciously planted that maybe this is what I want to do one day. But in terms of, I got off track, but in terms of, of, of people influencing me and my approach, uh, I, I just, I just feel, um, I, I would rather people say that I'm a nice guy, that I was, that, that I was a good broadcaster. I think that's, you hear people all the time, somebody passed away in our business or in any field, they say, boy, he was a, you know, he was a hell of a football player or he was a great uh, baseball player. And, my feeling is, number one, if you're a good person, 
and that's important to me. I I would I would be devastated if somebody said, "Boy, I ran into him one night in a restaurant, and he was a first class jerk." That that would really bother me, and I think that had a lot to do with the way I was brought up, and and I try I tried to maintain that. Uh, I, I mean, I, I've been fortunate in this business, but I'm no more special than anybody else is, and and I and I try to convey that to people. I I live in this town. Um, I'm going to live here, even though I own a nice place in Florida. I I see guys retire and they can't wait to get out of town and go live somewhere else. I'm not going to do that. And and people see me three and four days in Kroger and they stop and they want to talk baseball or uh, whatever they want to talk about. And I stand there and I talk with them and I enjoy uh, the relationship that I've always had with the fans and they've had with me. And I just, it's, it's just, it's very important for me to try to be a nice person. Marty, I, I think humility resonates when when our listeners hear your career and when what's gone on um i also look at how people describe you in your type of style i think uh, the modern day age i think a lot of people like to mold um you know that charles barkley mode of i'll say anything at any time right and that's that takes uh the type of person the confidence that you have i think a quote that I read describes you perfectly. And why I want to say it is that it's a perspective from a baseball player that goes out and you try to perform. You don't try to listen to who praises you. You go out there and do your job. But this quote was great. I I always say that if I praise you, I reserve the right to be critical of you. Um, That describes your type of style. How did you come to that? and, And what's the reasoning behind that? Well, when I first came here, Mark, I was a cheerleader. Uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say that. I, and I <laughs> personally, uh, I don't criticize anybody's style. If you want to root openly for your team on the air, that's fine. That mm-hmm. that's that, you feel comfortable with that. I never felt comfortable with that, uh, but uh, but I did early uh, because I think that was what the I thought that's what the club expected of me. I would refer to the Reds as we, and uh, the other club as they. And um, one day the Reds, the night before, they'd beaten the Atlanta Braves, I think, 25 to 7, um, down at Fulton County Stadium. And I was around Jack Billingham, and he had pitched the night before. And I was around Jack that next day, and I made the comment. I said, boy, that's a, that a great win we had last night. And he said, we? He said, how many hits did you get? How many people did you get out? And that was a defining moment for me. Because I realized that I, uh, whatever happens on that field, I'm not a member of that fraternity. And I don't want to presume to make people think that I am by referring to the club as we, because I'm not. Um, and so that day, uh, that, as someone once said to me, that famous French word meaning yes, um, I never use that word again. And as time went on, um, I don't, I don't, I, I, it was never a, a decision in my mind that now I'm going to become brutally honest or as brutally honest from my perspective as I think I can be. But it just evolved from the fact that no longer was I going to be a cheerleader. And, um, it, you know, it, the road I took, as, as unplanned as it might have been, is the road of most resistance because there are players that don't appreciate it. And, and over the years, 
I've had my share of nose to noses. And um, again, I, 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 if, if I'm going to praise you and I will, if you play well, um, if you, if you make a mistake on the field, that was an unavoidable mistake, but for whatever the reason you didn't make the play, or you assume that guy going down to first base was was jogging. Uh, famous story with Ken Griffey Jr. and I. He and I got into a major battle that lasted for a week. Um, I, I I could live with that, and and I I think that uh, as time went on, my credibility was very important to me. Uh, I, I think people knew that if I said something, they could believe that because I was not sugarcoating everything. Um, and the, the credibility was the most important thing in the world to me. You know what you also, though, Marty, you had this, you had the backing of the organization, it seemed like, and this is not an era of that anymore, really, because if you uh, don't necessarily cheerlead for the club, it can come back to haunt you. What was that, uh, that dynamic like between you and the team? They must have been pretty comfortable with your style, or am I wrong? Oh, no, I don't think they were comfortable at all. I think I, I reached a certain point where I think they would just grin and bear it or they would bite their tongue and live with it. We had a COO named John Allen, and there were times when we were in social situations around people, cocktail parties or whatever, and somebody would bring up my approach and and uh, John would make the comment, well, uh, the opinions that Marty uh, expressed are not necessarily those supported by the ownership and the management of this club. And everybody would have a big laugh over it, but he was dead serious. Um, there were a couple of times when I got into it with ownership over a thing. I know, uh, you know you guys may remember that famous brawl the Reds had with the Cardinals back in 2010 or whatever between Yadier Molina and, and Brandon Phillips. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, it happened at our place. And, and I was very critical of Tony LaRusso. I was never a big fan of Tony LaRusso's. And big, I should add that, conversely, Tony was not a big fan of mine, nor is he today. Uh, I used to refer to him sarcastically on the radio as Mr. Baseball because I inferred that he invented the game or thought he did. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so I was very critical of LaRusso, and, and, and I was called in one day by – uh, Bob and Phil Castellini, the family that owned the club. And they said, you got to back off of La Russa. And I said, for what? And they said, because it's affecting the relationship that we are having with the Bill DeWitt family. Uh, Bill DeWitt is the owner of the Cardinals. Bill DeWitt's primary residence is here in Cincinnati and always has been. Um, and, and the Castellini kids grew up with the DeWitt kids and they were lifelong friends. And he said, you know, you're creating some tension between the two families. So I backed off, but uh, my opinion of Tony was never, it did not grow by leaps and bounds to a point where it could be considered as affectionate. Um, but, you know, those times were rare. Um, and I also knew, Mike, uh, there was a line that you did not cross. And I've had people say to me, well, define that line. Tell me where it is. I can't tell you where it is. I think it's an intuitive thing. Um, and, and I don't know that I ever really crossed that line, but I can tell you this, I, I firmly believe that, um, there will never be a young broadcaster coming into this business that had the freedom that I did. Uh, it's a different, it's a different game that they play today in the radio and TV booth. And uh, I think most guys have to measure 
every word that comes out of their mouths for uh, something that might make somebody mad. Uh, and I understand that. If I had to start all over again and I was a young guy trying to get to where I once got with that style I had, there's no way on God's earth anybody would hire me. Mm -hmm. They would not hire me at all. I was too controversial, I think. Well, Marty, I'll tell you this. I, as I mentioned to my nine-year-old son, I, I failed a lot, right, in the game. And just like if you play the game for a substantial amount of time, you're going to fail. Um, I, I appreciated uh, your candor and the way you presented the game because the success goes with the failures as well. And you have to have thicker skin, in my opinion, as players. It doesn't happen that way. There's a lot of insecurities that create that. Um Listen, uh, as broadcasters, it's really about your calls, too. And I don't think it's you patting yourself on the back, but there's calls that you make that instantly change the way you're viewed in so many things. Is there a notable call in your career that sticks out as one of the best that you felt like after? You know what? I kind of nailed that. And it was a very important meaning in the game of baseball. Well, you know, that's a good question, because I think, uh, you know, there are events that occur that you know are going to occur, or there are events that completely shock you that you're not prepared for. Uh, when Pete broke Cobb's record, we knew it was going to happen. It was just a question of when, um, as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, Tom Browning pitching a perfect game. We had no idea that was going to happen. And I think there are people that uh, on events that they know are coming up will try to think of something that they're going to say that's clever. Uh, I, I was never good enough to do that and make it sound like it was anything but contrived. So I never did that. I, um, I, I tried to, when a, a, a big event occurred, to convey the feeling in the ballpark conveyed what was going on around that player or players. And we are all our own worst critics, or, or if we're not, then we're kidding ourselves. You know, when you go home at night, whether you had a good night in the booth or you had a bad night in the booth or you had an average night in the booth. And I used to beat myself up if, if, if I, for whatever the reason, uh, I, I used to say, well, that, you know, those guys down on the field that I'm critical of at times, I, they could have a field day with me tonight because I didn't do a very good job. Um, I, it, it, it's interesting because the, my two of my favorite calls among all the ones that I've had um, would be Ken Griffey Jr.'s 500th home run. It came in St. Louis on Father's Day and Ken Sr. was there and, and Jr.'s family was there and he hit it off Matt Morris and it was a typical Griffey home run. It was gone from the time it left his bat. And then the home run that Jay Bruce hit off Houston um, in the bottom of the ninth inning in 2010 or 12, I lose sight of the, the, that ended the game and sent the Reds into the postseason for the first time, uh, I think since 1999 or, or no, no, 1997. Uh, they were two of my favorite calls and, and it was nothing planned. Uh, it, it, they, it, they came out. Uh, I felt like I, I didn't, I didn't stumble over my words. I, I think I conveyed what was happening on the field. Uh, and I was, I was happy with those calls. Um, I've been fortunate in, in the calls that I've had to make that, that I was able to, the words flowed properly and there was no stumbling around. And because, you know, if you have an event like that and you screw it up, 
you're going to be listening to that thing ad nauseum for the rest of your life and kids and your grandkids. So you don't want to mess them up. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you pick those two calls and listeners will remember you're the guy who made the call when Hank Aaron tied Babe Ruth. All right, in 74, when Pete Rose broke Ty Cobb's hit record, uh, Tom Browning's perfect game. So you had a bunch to pick from. You know, Roy yeah. Halladay was a, as an opposing broadcaster. A lot of great stuff uh, in your career that you got to be witness to and convey to the audience. But you brought up the name Griffey now a couple of times, and it, Mark and I had been thinking about this the other day. You're a guy who called games for Griffey, Sr. and Jr., the Perez's, Right, Tony and Eduardo. And yep. then you have the opportunity to work with your son, Tom. Perhaps ironic, maybe just coincidental. What did it mean to you? I, it meant the world to me. I, uh, I, I've often felt that when, you know, you become a father and you have kids, um, if you're successful in what your occupational endeavor turns out to be that uh, I was never going to put any pressure on my kids to do what I did for a living. And I never did that. I mean, I've seen situations where there's been pressure brought to bear on kids. A, 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 a very successful lawyer wants his kid to go into a, a doctor or whatever the case might be. So we never talked about it. And uh, Tom went to Ohio University and he came home one summer and just very casually one day said, you know, I think I want to do what you do for a living. And I said, that's fine. And that, that was the end of it. And he went to work for a campus station in Athens, Ohio, and, and uh, you know, got a job at the NBC affiliate, TV affiliate in Cincinnati reporting sports and then became the weekend anchor. And, and then from there, went to Chicago to work with Harry Carey for 10 years and from there to Arizona and from Arizona to Cincinnati. And, Along the way, did NFL football and baseball for Fox, and it turned out to be very talented. And and uh, I know Pete Rose used to say he's got good bloodlines. Uh, he 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 was very successful, um, and and I was thrilled to death. But but we would only talk shop, as it referred to him in reference to his work. If 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 he asked me to, uh, I'd watch him do NFL football and. I'd watch him or listen to him do some basketball. And, and if he wanted my opinion, I'd give it to him. If he never asked me for my opinion, then I wouldn't say a word. Uh, and I felt that way about anybody. I know we had a hitting instructor back in the big red machine era, Ted Klazuski, who was a great player in his own right. And Clue was one of the great batting instructors I'd ever been around, but he would never offer an opinion or help to a guy unless they came and asked him. And I asked him one day, I said, why do you do it that way? He said, because if they come to ask me for help, then that means they need help rather than me offering something that may, they may not feel like they needed. And I felt the same way about Tom and about other young broadcasters. And, but I was thrilled that, that he had the success that he's had. And, um, I, but he's also a good person. He's a good guy. And, 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 I've had production people all over the country come up to me when I was working and say, uh, tell Tom I said hello. And I said, I will. He said he really treats us guys behind the camera with a great deal of respect and, and, and dignity. And I, that was more, as I referred earlier, that was more important to me than anything. Marty, uh, you mentioned fraternity uh, within the broadcasting. Yeah. And there's been some legends in the game, as you know, and, 
and you you take something from from every legend and you also have that personal relationship. I'd like to do something fun here where you can describe these type of personalities in your own mind. You don't have to elaborate because I know you're a great storyteller. But I think it's fascinating for our listeners to understand uh, a little bit of relationship or maybe the snippet of of these broadcast legends. I'll start uh, with the great Jack Buck, the late great Jack Buck. Uh, what did you think of Jack? I, I, I thought Jack was spectacular. He's the greatest interviewer I've ever been around. He could ask a question and ask it in two or three words because he, he felt what he had to say was not important to people. It was the person he was interviewing. Uh, he was the most understated but wonderful play-by-play guy. You talk about a guy that was conversational and, and could convey the impact and the beauty of the game of baseball, uh, and not only that sport, but all the ones that he did. Jack was just a, a class guy. How about Harry Carey? One of a kind, pal. <laughs> <laughs> One of a kind. I, uh, I, I think the, the most important thing about Harry was the way he treated my son when Tom was in Chicago. Harry had a reputation for being very unkind to young broadcasters. He loved Tom Brenneman. He loved Tom. In fact, when Tom said that uh, now that he was leaving on the last day of the season that he was working in Chicago, he cleared the TV booth out and sat down and told Harry, and Harry broke down and cried. Uh, I'll always be indebted to Harry and now to his memory because of the way he treated Tom. And uh, he owned the town of St. Louis when he was on top of his game there. And he sure as hell owned the town of Chicago when he was doing Cubs games. I'll stay with that theme with a great entertainer. Uh, Bob Euchre of the Milwaukee Brewers. One of my dear friends. One of my dear friends in life. Um, I just, and, and it is funny off the air. As people who have watched in the past, Mr. Belvedere, uh, he's one of the truly funniest people I've ever been around. And uh, I stay in touch with him. I, I love the guy dearly. I, I just I could I could talk forever about Bob Uger. And how about the great Ernie Harwell? Maybe the nicest man I've ever met uh, among broadcasters. Uh, you talk about a guy with no ego. Um I, uh, I look forward to when we uh, Reds played the Tigers in spring training because I'd cross paths with him. And uh, I, he was a wonderful broadcaster for a number of clubs, most notably known for Detroit. But he was with Baltimore way back early in his career. And he, he was just a special person who was a great broadcaster, but also was just an a, a, a incredibly wonderful person. Marty, we could always talk about so many of these guys. Uh, our listeners would remember Mel Allen, uh, Harry Callis, with his partner, Richie Ashburn. Uh, we could go on and on. But the one guy that I think is fascinating, and I'd love to get your perspective, is the great Vin Scully, who uh, recently retired. He's the GOAT, man. He's the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time. Uh, I don't think I've ever met a person, Mark, who lived his life daily to be told by people, you're the greatest at what you did of anybody who's ever lived and had zero, has zero ego. He has no ego. Um, I'm proud to call him a friend. In fact, when I retired um, or was in my last season, he would periodically call me on the phone. And I realized one day I said, Ben, are you concerned about whether or not I'm concerned about retiring? 
And he said, well, I just want to make sure that you feel in your heart you've made the right decision. I said, I do. I do. Believe me. I, I look forward to seeing him every time the Reds and Dodgers played. I marveled at the way he dealt with people. And even more so, not periodically now, I'll, I'll find a play-by-play -play snippet of him and just listen to it because of the way he portrayed the game of baseball. He, 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 he has been a very, very special guy in my life. Marty, you make that comfortable choice, and I think you were ready for it. What's, what sounds like that, anyway, is, uh, is retirement. But also, the Reds do the right thing that I think all of us realize is they inducted you into the Reds Hall of Fame 2020. Because of the pandemic, obviously, you're, you're not inducted into that. They pushed it back to 2021. Uh, your feelings of that, it, because you're the only broadcaster in the Reds Hall of Fame, by the way. You're going to be the 90th representative uh, I think it was, let's do 81 players, five managers, three executives, and you're the only broadcaster. What's that feel like? Well, I'm, I'm going to be dead honest with you about this. Um, I, it always bothered me a little bit that I could be at Coop, I could be in Cooperstown, but I can't get in my own club's Hall of Fame. And so, and the, and the way the bylaws are written, it, it prohibited me and anybody else in a non-playing, non-executive position forever going in. And so <laughs> I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but when um, I've met with the club officials uh, to plan out my last year, and I walked into Phil Castellini's office and we sat down and he started talking about everything that they had planned for me. And I said, stop. I said, let me tell you how this is going to be. If they don't change the bylaws to allow me to be in the Reds Hall of Fame, you will not get my cooperation from anything. I said, I think it's wrong. And I'd done, I'd done some research about all the teams that, you know, that had team halls of fame. And every one of them, I think, allowed broadcasters to be in it. And I said, Phil, I deserve to be in that Hall of Fame. I've never politicked forever. I know I wrote letters for guys uh, to be considered for the broadcaster's wing of the Hall of Fame. I wrote le three letters for three people. I would have never asked anybody to do that for me because I felt like if I couldn't get in on my own merit, I didn't need somebody else promoting me to try and get me in. And this is the only time I've ever done that because I felt like I deserved to be there. And the bylaws were changed. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to death to be in it. I, I, uh, uh, and I think I deserve to be in it. And people will say, well, that's egotistical as hell. Well, they may say that, but I don't, I don't look at it that way. I mean, when you devote 46 years of your life and, and, and by the, uh, the, the words of the owner of this club, Bob Castellini, who said my last year, he has broadcast virtually upwards of one third of all the games that this franchise has played going back to 1869. I'm thinking, I didn't even know that. I yeah. said that's, that's pretty impressive. And so I'm, I, I, in many ways, it's going to be the most special thing that I've ever, ever had happen to me. And, and to be surrounded by the guys that I was surrounded by, but I'm almost going to be, I'm, a, I'm going to be an Island unto myself. And what I hope happens is that once I'm inducted and right now it's planned for late August, it'll open the door for other people that, that maybe not a broadcaster, although I think there are some guys, I think Chris Welch down the road deserves to be in the Reds uh, Hall of Fame. 
Um, I think it will make it easier. Uh, Bernie Stowe, who ran the Reds Clubhouse, mm-hmm. and his son Rick, and the yep. visiting clubhouse, Mark Stowe. These people deserve to be in that Hall of Fame. The Boston Red Sox put a guy who was a customer relations guy that sat at a little table on one of the concourses at Fenway Park for 43 years. And he's in there with Ted Williams and Carl Yastrzemski and all the other former great Red Sox players. If they can do that, then then they can loosen the reins a little bit to let some people that did not put on a baseball uniform every day to be in that Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's the fabric of an organization. Uh, uh, The inner works of the the organization can't be minimized if you're around that. Um, So I commend you for that. And so well-deserving, Marty. Uh, I I think the longevity speaks volumes, and you certainly had that. Um, The interesting aspect in the question around baseball, and you have a direct correlation to it, is Pete Rose. You're in the Hall of Fame of the Ford Frick Award. Uh, I think that's spectacular. Um, your opinion of Pete Rose, the player, possibly being inducted into the Hall of Fame? Well, for, for one thing, Mark, I don't think it'll ever happen unless if it does, I think it'll be after Pete's gone. And I think that'll be the greatest injustice of all time. Um, and I've gone full cycle. When they, when they threw him out of the game, uh, I was 100% agreement. Uh, with that decision. But as years have gone on and other things have come into the game of baseball that have been somewhat negatively accepted by the majority of people, uh, the steroid aspect of of what went on back in the nineties for the most part. um, I just feel that uh, he's paid his dues now. He's, he's, he's been kept out. And I think there's a certain level of hypocrisy about it because if you go to Cooperstown and you go through the hall, you can hardly turn around without seeing some mention of Pete and what he did as a player. Now, my feeling on that is if you're not going to allow him in, then take every mention of, of what he accomplished as a player out of the hall for all time. I don't think you can have it both ways. Uh, but I think we have an administration in the game today, most notably Rob Manfred and the people that uh, work under him that are not interested in uh, offering up a ear to the possibility that he will one day be allowed in. And I, as I said, if they're not going to allow him in while he's alive, then don't put him in after he passes away. Uh, I speak of this with great prejudice because Uh, The two guys that I consider to be the best friends that I've ever had among players are Pete and God rest his soul, Joe Morgan. They were my two best friends. And, and uh, I, you know, Pete's the first one to admit he made a mistake, uh, made a major mistake, made the single biggest mistake that you can make. But I think after a while, if you can, if you can accept the president having sex in the white house, like Bill Clinton did, then for God's sake, you got to rethink the Pete Rose thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, got, I agree with that. And, and you look at the body of work. Uh, I, I mean, f- over 4,000 hits. Uh, that's laughable. Uh, anyone that's put on a uniform or done what you have done, uh, it's laughable to realize that guy performed at a high level every single day of his lengthy career. And the thing, uh, the, what I found, you know, 
leave it to Pete to put it in. He could put so many things in proper perspective when it came to baseball. Somebody would ask him, uh, you think anybody will ever break your record? He said, well, yeah, yeah, they can do it if they have 20 years of getting 200 hits or more. (laughs) That pretty much puts it where it should be. Yeah. And you think of it, Marty, uh, uh, this evolves into the question now. Uh, Back in the day when you're playing over 20 years in the game of baseball, we're not going to see that anymore. I'd be very, very surprised. Um, But I think your perspective on this is you started in the 70s and now you're seeing uh, 2021. What has the game evolved into, in your opinion? I know that the game has changed the way it's played, but uh, is there is there something that you look at and say, you know what, I'm glad baseball is going this direction or is it a different perspective for you? Well, I mean, uh, we, we eliminate for the sake of argument analytics. I'm not a big fan of analytics, but I'm an old guy and I understand when people jump my case because I, I'm not a big fan of it. Um, of course. But I, there, as traditional as I am about the game, there are certain things that I kind of like. Um, I like to put in the runner at second base and extra innings. I mm-hmm. like that. I think there's so much strategy involved in that from both dugouts I don't have a problem with that. Uh, I understand that probably with the next CBA agreement, hopefully being negotiated without a lot of uh, animosity one toward the other, that uh, as much as I've disliked the DH over the years, I understand now the time has come that they have to make it universal. I understand that. Um, I, I just think that our game has been slow to meet the times uh, you see football having made changes, multitude of changes over the years, uh, the, uh, the NFL, the NBA um, baseball has been very reluctant to change. And I think that as time goes by, there are certain things that you need to do that, that have an appeal for the fan that you need to break away from hardcore tradition and maybe implement that thing, whatever it might be. Um, in, in the game itself. Uh, I, uh, I think the biggest change that we've had in this game, and it's something that's never going to go away is social media. Um, uh, you know, God bless the guys that I used to hang with back in the seventies hmm. and guys go out and they'd have a big time and, and whatever happened, happened. And, and those same types of things that might occur today, you can't do that because somebody inevitably is going to take a picture of you in a place that maybe you shouldn't be. And, and I think players have dealt with that out of necessity, and I admire them for that. Um, but again, uh, it's never going to go away, and that in itself changes the way you should conduct yourself as a player, as a broadcaster, as a general manager, whatever you might be. Um, I still maintain, despite all the changes, and I'm not a big fan of a game being all about home runs and strikeouts and walks. I'm not a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of stealing bases. I'm a big fan of hitting and running. Um, uh, and I really believe that the pendulum one day will come back toward the center or as close to the center as it possibly can be. Um, I think that a, the, a, a well-executed hit and run play is one of the most beautiful things there is in sports. And I hate to see the element of speed leave this game because I think it's important. It has been, all these years. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I, and uh, it's, it's still a wonderful, wonderful game. And there's nothing like sitting in a ballpark on a nice summer night or spring night 
and watching a game with somebody who's a friend of yours or your wife, and you can discuss what's happening on the field, and you can do it in a conversational tone, and you're not going to miss anything. And I don't think you can say the same for football or basketball or hockey or whatever the case might be. So uh, God bless this game. Uh, I'm concerned about the leadership of this game. I'm concerned about the the animosity that exists right now between ownership and the player union. Uh, I, I pray to God that they figure out some way to get this CBA done without any interruption, because I think if you have another strike in this game, God only knows what's going to happen because people don't want to see any more of that. Well, with all the changes, uh, boy, you are certainly missed as a broadcaster. You have been that wonderful thread that has woven uh, community into baseball and back again for so many years. We really do appreciate the time. I know you've been busy even since retirement. Uh, give us an idea of what you've been up to on the charity front, because we know how important that is to you. Well, there too. Thank you for asking, Mike. I, I, I've been heavily involved over the years with the Reds Community Fund, which is um, dealing with uh, kids in urban areas and, and, and igniting the interest in baseball with new ball fields and, and things of that. They have a, a Reds Community Fund uh, Urban Youth Academy here in Cincinnati, which was one of the earlier uh, such facilities built, which is incredible for young our inner city kids, which they've done a wonderful job. And I have a golf tournament every year with the proceeds going to that. Um, I'm also involved in an outfit called the Dragonfly Foundation, which is a, a growing uh, foundation here in Cincinnati that deals with youngsters that uh, have cancer or blood-related diseases uh, in conjunction with Children's Hospital here in Cincinnati, which is one of the great children's hospitals in the country. Um, and I've, I've worked with them and, and it, it's near and dear to my heart, uh, because I don't think any young ch children or child should have to spend the majority of his or her early years in the hospital dealing with pain and, and everything that goes in with trying to conquer a, a dreaded disease like uh, cancer or leukemia. So they're the two, uh, charities that I'm, that are most near and dear to me and, and uh, and I appreciate you asking the question. I really do. Marty, it's interesting because we always wonder what's next, right? Uh, taking trips. You know, you have that beautiful home in Florida. Also, you know that uh, Joe Nuxall wants you to continue to work on your golf game. So what is <laughs> what's next for you? And uh, what are you looking most forward to do uh, in your retirement? I just got measured for a golfer, a driver yesterday. I just nice. got yesterday. I, uh, I'm not a good player. I love to play. And but yeah, as you well know, in our job, we are, we have the opportunity of playing some of the great golf courses in the country and our travels, which I've been able to do. Um, supposed to go to Ireland in July and play golf over there for two weeks. I don't think that country is going to be open. So God bless Amanda, my wife. She immediately sat down uh, I think she was a driver of an 18-wheel over-the-road driver in a previous life. We are now going to Bandon Dunes in Oregon in July. Nice. Play. Um, we've uh, just came back from uh, spring training for 17 days and then rented a uh, SUV and drove a route, 40, a route 66 across the country back, uh, which was a spectacular trip. Uh, we've got cruises planned. Uh, she's 30 years younger than I am. 
and she will not let grass grow underneath my feet. And she keeps <laughs> on God bless her for that. So, uh, Mark, uh, nobody has embraced retirement, uh, Mike, more than I have. And, and I've never once regretted the decision. I've never looked back. Um, I am very happy in, in my position as being now nothing but a fan. Uh, I really don't go to the ballpark very much because I don't want to get in people's way. I don't want, I don't hang out in the booth. I don't want guys to say, he's retiring. Why don't you stay home? That's not going to happen. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy in my retirement. I really am. Well, we regret your decision that you left the game, but right. at least from the booth. But we've really enjoyed you for so many years, Marty. Thanks, been, Mike. We've, you've been wonderful. Thank you so much for the time. Hey, congratulations. Enjoy the upcoming induction into the Reds Hall of Fame. Obviously a belated uh, and further congratulations to your Ford Frick Award years ago in induction into Cooperstown. Nothing left on that 46-year resume with the Reds, is there? I don't think so. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, well, it's been a wonderful ride, and it's been a wonderful opportunity for us to connect with you and our listeners. Thanks again, Marty, so much. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mark. I've enjoyed being with you guys. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.